1. Gahnawage and Canada Relationships of Laws and Lands Then, Deganawida continued and said, We have still one matter left to be considered, and that is with reference to the hunting grounds of our people from which they derive their living. They, the lords, Rodianer, or Confederacy chiefs, said with reference to this matter, We shall now do this. We shall only have one dish, or bowl, in which will be placed one beaver's tail, and we shall all have co-equal right to it. And there shall be no knife in it, for if there be a knife in it, there would be danger that it might cut someone, and blood would thereby be shed. The Constitution of the Five Nations, version of the Goa, recorded by Arthur Parker. It has been the impression of many people that the Indian nations of America had no conception of national boundary lines between nations and that all they did was just wander around the country and help themselves to any spot that took their fancy. Even the late Theodore Roosevelt believed this to be true. Another popular belief has been that all Indians in a community had no ideas of individual ownership of things and that everything was shared by any and every member of the tribe. Both ideas are erroneous. Instead, we find the strictest ideas of both these concepts were believed in and practiced by all Indians to the fullest extent. Each individual had property rights, and these rights were highly respected by every member of the tribe or nation. I mean to say by this that while no Indian had much more than his neighbor at any time, he certainly did have sole title to whatever he did possess. William B. Newell, 1965 In the 17th and 18th centuries, Rudinashuni kept and used feast bowls to symbolize the lands that each nation shared. The clans of each nation dipped their spoons into the common bowl to share a meal, symbolically sharing in the bounty of the lands. The principle of the bowl or dish with one spoon is a powerful political and moral metaphor for sharing land and its bounty, common to indigenous nations of the larger Great Lakes region. The Goa, the Great Law of Peace, quoted in the first epigraph above, employs this concept to explain how Rudinashuni shared their hunting grounds, but other versions refer to cultivated fields as well. This legal formulation of land use and rights established the people's rights to freely live on the land and to live in right relation with each other and the land. In this chapter, I introduce readers to the early history of Gahnawage and to Rudinashuni and Gahnawage law in relation to the land. I give a brief history of the community itself and its relationship with French and British colonial governments. I explain aspects of Gahnawage Hironu involvement with the French colonial seigneurial system which is necessary to understand if we are to appreciate the land grievances and concerns of the community that are detailed in this book, which continue to affect the community to this day. I also introduce aspects of the legal pluralism in that indigenous and colonial legal systems operated side by side, and the ways in which settlers and their laws began to intrude in Gahnawage in harmful ways. Many indigenous people did not and do not believe that land should be bought and sold, 
but it is also true that all human societies have ways of assigning legal rights to territory, to individuals and groups. Although abstracted, decontextualized territory is a colonial imposition in North America, and the English language has been shaped and defined by capitalist and instrumentalist assumptions about nature. It is nevertheless a fact that indigenous legal orders deal with questions around who should have access to land and its bounty. Another myth about indigenous people, noted in the epigraph by Gunyotgehaka scholar William B. Newell, is that they held all property in common and had no concept of individual property rights. In reality, every indigenous society had a concept of collective territorial sovereignty, individual rights to territory, and also individual and collective rights to other items. Some things were, are, held in common. Other things were, are, not. Note that even the words thing, held, sovereignty, and rights may not be appropriate in this context because they assume social hierarchy and ownership. The English language is not well-equipped to speak about non-capitalist forms of territoriality or about land practices that do not involve permanent villages and perpetually cultivated lands. Thus, certain English words related to land ownership and property do not fully capture and potentially distort the meaning of non-capitalist forms of land tenure, such as the ones discussed in this chapter. I do use these words, if sparingly, but ask readers to remember this caveat. Although fee-simple ownership is now widely assumed to be the normal way for people to relate to land, it is only one way to assign legal rights to territory. The imposition of fee-simple land ownership is also at the heart of the settler colonial project. I see the current human-caused climate and ecological crisis as intimately connected to colonial and capitalist relations with land, nature, and other-than-human creatures. Indigenous conceptions of nature point us toward a relationship of love and relatedness, recognizing other-than-human creatures as kin, water as sacred, and land as powerful life-giver. Gahnawage Hronu share a common legal tradition with other Rudinashuni, and when they joined with Ganyongehaga, Abenaki, Wendat, and Algonquin nations of the St. Lawrence Valley in a political alliance called the Seven Nations of Canada, they were guided by these principles. The continuity of these legal principles is revealed by a 1796 petition in which Seven Nations leaders, along with Odawa, Mi'kmaq, and Maliseet counterparts, protested a newly imposed British prohibition against hunting northeast of Quebec City that was intended to reserve hunting in that area for the Innu, Montagnier. The leaders addressed General Robert Prescott, saying that, We are the true native inhabitants of this country, and that God had placed us first on these lands. It is there that our ancestors, to preserve peace, had resolved to make use only of one dish and one platter, and to eat all together. This parable signifies that there was no limits for the Indian hunting, that all the country should be free. 
When the king of France set foot on our ground, he did not conquer us. He came as a father who wishes to protect his children. We communicated to him this parable of the dish and spoon. He approved of it and encouraged us to continue in our way of acting. He did not tell us children, I want to share in your dish and have the best bit in it. When our father, the king of England, drove away the king of France, we were so earnest in nothing as communicating to him this parable. He did more than the king of France, for he had the goodness to prop up the dish telling us that he did not wish that we should make use of knives to eat our meal, lest they should hurt us. And as a proof of it, we preserve his word, parole. He did not tell us that he wished to eat with us, being accustomed to a different kind of food. In this case, seven nations' leaders employed the metaphor of the dish with one spoon to explain why Europeans had no right to interfere with the ways indigenous peoples managed their hunting territories, but also to emphasize the communitarian nature of the relationships with the land and other-than-human creatures. Rodinashuni lived and hunted in the St. Lawrence Valley for centuries, but the first people to form the village of Gahnawage arrived in the mid-17th century, well after first contact with Europeans. French settlers were moving quickly to settle the St. Lawrence Valley at this time, and the French crown laid claim to the entire territory. Gahnawage Hronu, as allies of the French, accepted the French presence and French legal jurisdiction over settlers, but have always asserted jurisdiction over their own lands and people. By 1672, residents hailed from at least 22 indigenous nations, including about 300 Wendats, who represented the single largest nationality. But following the subsequent arrival of several hundred Gunyotgehaga from the Mohawk Valley, Many non-Ganyankehaga moved elsewhere, and the community became increasingly Ganyankehaga in character. Most of the original Gahnawagehronu had fled the insecurity of war, the ravages of disease, and the upheavals of religious factionalism. In addition to these negative factors, according to the Ganyankehaga leaders Joseph Brandt and John Norton in 1801, the original Gahnawagehronu were attracted by the prospect of having access to better and cheaper trade goods compared to what was available in Albany. They came from many nations and many places, but they all believed that Gahnawage offered what they needed, safety, economic opportunity, and religious and social harmony. They saw it as a place where they could live as they wished, with the freedoms they expected. Their intent was not to put themselves under the thumb of the French monarch or missionaries, as early commentators and historians erroneously believed. Rather, many saw themselves as moving into a different part of their own national territories, and they formed a political and military alliance with the French in exchange for political independence, economic opportunity, and land security. Moving to the Montreal area was not an admission of defeat, or a sign of submission to colonial authorities, but a calculated decision that equated living near a center of French colonial power with the best opportunity to recover and thrive on their own terms. 
This chapter shows that though they brought with them a legal and agricultural tradition, they also adapted certain European ideas and practices. Land and Law in Early Gahnawage Gahnawage Hironu come from a tradition where villages were not permanent, moving approximately every generation. This Rodinashoni practice continued well into the contact period, but generally ended in the 18th century. Gahnawage itself was moved for the last time in 1716. Before that point, a village site remained in use until a number of factors converged to make a move necessary. Soil became compacted and less fertile, and weeds became unmanageable. Firewood became too distant for easy collection and transport, and insect and rodent pests invaded fields and homes. More and more effort and time were required to produce crops, collect firewood, and maintain the longhouses, until finally the community decided to relocate. A new village site was chosen carefully on the basis of various factors, including the quality of the soil, access to water, and availability of firewood. Uplands were favored, not only for military reasons, but also because the lighter soils were relatively easy to turn with wooden tools. Rudinashuni referred to the area in and around villages as the clearing, and to the spaces beyond them as the forest. This binary was so foundational to their everyday reality that the clearing and the forest became powerful metaphors for everything from international politics to gender relations and family life. Rudinashuni land practices included fishing and hunting, usually associated with the forest, but my focus here is on activities linked with the clearing. I interpret the origin of Gahnawage in light of this settlement tradition. Although it is true that the mid to late 17th century was a time of crisis for the people who chose to move to Gahnawage, it was also normal for them to periodically relocate. It is also true that the cultural, linguistic makeup of particular villages could change dramatically based on such facts as decisions of families to leave or join. Agriculture and Law Settler writers over the last 200 years have propagated the false idea that indigenous land practices, including agriculture, were primitive at best and that indigenous people underutilized the land. Rodinashuni storytellers, scholars, and historians, by contrast, remember their ancestors as innovative, prosperous, and productive farmers. Recent scientific research tends to confirm early colonial reports of highly productive, large-scale Rodinashuni agriculture. Early colonizers and missionaries described substantial villages and large surrounding fields ranging in size from 10 acres to several hundred. For example, French soldiers in 1669 described a Seneca clearing of cultivated land that was nearly 10 kilometers in circumference, which equates to about 7.5 square kilometers, 750 hectares, or 1,850 acres. In 1687, French soldiers claimed to have destroyed 400,000 minos, or 1.2 million bushels of corn, during an attack on four Seneca towns. To put this into perspective, 1.2 million bushels of corn would fill 17 Olympic-sized swimming pools. 
The Dutch traveler, Harman Maindernts van den Bogert, who visited Gonyange country in 1634-35, described affluent towns whose longhouses were full of beaver pelts, grains, and dried venison. Everywhere he went, he saw huge stores of corn, in some cases entire longhouses dedicated to this purpose. One town consisted of 55 longhouses used for habitation and a few more used only for grain storage. But even the inhabited houses were full of grain and beans. Although many European observers derided Sweden cultivation, a technique of rotational farming practiced by Rudinashuni in which land is cleared for cultivation and then left to regenerate, also known as shifting cultivation or slash-and-burn farming. As backward and unproductive, it was actually an innovative and sustainable practice that enabled Rudinashuni to build a secure and stable society over many centuries. Agriculture was feminized in Rudinashuni thinking and practice. Women had jurisdiction over village and agricultural activities, the clearing, and were responsible for planting, tending, harvesting, and processing crops, storing and cooking food, and conducting rituals that promoted successful harvests. Rudinashuni leaders over the centuries have consistently stated that women are the owners and caretakers of the land, and the Gayanerech Goa includes this gendered legal distinction. Men played a limited role in the clearing. They built houses and cleared fields, but it was the women who directed these activities. Dutch colonial observer Adrian van der Donk noted in the 1640s that old men and children also worked the fields under the direction of the women. Agricultural work was feminized to such an extent, according to historian and museologist Arthur Parker, that even men who simply helped to clear the fields did not want to be seen. Old men who were caught with a hoe in their hands often excused themselves. And if a man helped his wife in the field, it was a sign of his extraordinary love for her. This gendering of the clearing, of village governance, and of agricultural labor meant that Rudinashuni men often deferred to women on questions of land. There are numerous instances of treaty negotiations breaking down or being delayed because the men were unwilling to make agreements involving land without the approval of the women of the nation. Joseph Francois Lafetau, 1681-1746, a Jesuit missionary who lived in Gahnawage during the 1710s, was an astute observer of its everyday life. Writing about how women organize their work, he stated they make numerous different bands according to the different quarters where they have their fields and pass from one field to the other helping each other. One woman was designated the coordinator, or in Lafitau's words, the mistress of the field, la maîtresse du champ, whose job it was to distribute seeds and assign each working group to a particular area. Moving from field to field was relatively easy because there were no hedges or ditches between them, unlike the European fields that Lafitau knew. In fact, he noted that they give the appearance of only a single farm where there are no disputes over boundaries because everyone knows how to recognize them clearly. Although many would have assumed that the open character implied a lack of divisions, Lafitau understood that Ganyankehaga land ownership included both communal and individual elements. Indeed, his remarks are unusual in that he made no negative judgments about the openness of the Ganyankehaga agricultural landscape, unlike many of his contemporaries. 
For example, van der Donk had written 60 years earlier that Rodinacioni farmers were not neat and cleanly in their fields, paid very little attention to their crops, and left their fields open, unenclosed, and unprotected. Nevertheless, even he admitted that these methods produced massive surpluses on which the Dutch depended to stock their ships with food. Property Relations Closely connected to the false notion that indigenous people had no real governments or laws is the belief, still widely held, that their lands were a kind of undifferentiated collective property. Cognacajaga scholar William B. Newell confronted this damaging truism in 1965 when he wrote the passage that opens this chapter. Whereas all indigenous peoples organized their territories in ways that excluded some and granted access to others, Newell also gives examples of individual ownership of horses, cows, dogs, cats, and chickens as evidence of individual property among Rodinashuni. To further argue for a kind of Rodinashuni private property, he cited such practices as ritualized gift-giving, as well as the borrowing and lending of tools. Sir William Johnson, longtime British superintendent of Indian affairs in the 18th century, also recognized that Rodinashuni had their own laws and understandings regarding land, ownership, and use rights. In 1764, he wrote that it was easy to find the true indigenous owner of a particular parcel of land. Each nation, he explained, is perfectly well acquainted with their exact original bounds. The same is again divided into due proportions for each tribe, and afterwards subdivided into shares to each family. Neither do they ever infringe upon one another or invade their neighbor's hunting grounds. Among Rodinashuni, land was not bought or sold, but it could be allocated to families for exclusive agricultural use. Historian Arthur Parker gives a good example of the complexity of property relations among Rodinashuni. The function of the men was to hunt, to bring in the game and stand ever ready to defend their people and their property and to engage in war expeditions. An Iroquois man must be ever generous and give to everyone who asked for his arms or his meat. If he brought his bear to the village, it became public property, to the material injury of himself and family. He therefore left his game hidden in the outskirts of his town and sent his wife to bring it in. She was not bound to give of her husband's bounty and could properly refuse the appeals of the hungry, lazy, or others who loved to prey upon generosity. After the meat was cooked, however, the case was different, and she was bound to feed any who came to her door. This passage reveals a great deal about the relationship of property to gender, as well as the differing moral and legal norms that applied to the bear depending on where it was, who possessed it, and whether it was cooked or uncooked. Parker also discussed Rudinashuni land use traditions in terms of ownership. According to him, individuals could freely cultivate their own fields, but if they wanted to share in the communal harvest, they had to work in the communal fields. He even claimed, on the basis of oral histories, that individually owned fields were marked out by a post on which was painted the clan totem and individual name sign. 
Haudenosaunee women were the managers and owners of the land, houses, and food stores, and individual women had jurisdiction over the plots they cultivated. Scholars have often understood this gendered relationship to land as one of the bases for the political power that women wielded in Haudenosaunee societies. Anthropologist Elizabeth Tucker points out, however, that such an interpretation does not take into account the fact that particular cultivated plots and houses were not viewed as the permanent holdings of individuals to be passed down to children. Because residents abandoned old longhouses and fields when the village moved, roughly once a generation, and built new longhouses and cleared new land, land was not hoarded, bought, sold, or passed along to children. Thus, it could not be easily instrumentalized and translated into political power. Tucker also emphasizes that though tools and other objects were owned by those who used them, Rodinashuni law did not articulate property in terms of a transferable ownership right to a certain object or a delineated space, but as recognized rights in the context of use. Likewise, 19th-century anthropologist Lewis Morgan was told by his informants that no individual could obtain the absolute title to land, as that was vested by the laws of the Iroquois in all the people. But he could reduce unoccupied lands to cultivation, to any extent he pleased, and so long as he continued to use them, his right to their enjoyment was protected and secured. The late Akwazasne leader and scholar, Gayant Darugwa Ernie Benedict, recounted that in the days before European interference, when a man wished to build a home and take some land for his family, he simply went to the desired location and indicated that this was to be his property. Sago Guanyogwa's Tom Porter, a leader in Gunajoharege, explains that according to traditional principles, a person who owns a certain number of horses has a right to use an area of land appropriated for that number of horses, but no more. Rodinashuni property law did not consider land as a commodity to be transferred to heirs, but it did recognize the rights of an individual to exclusively use particular objects and to delineate specific spaces under certain conditions. Village Architecture over the course of the 18th century, Gatnawageronu continued to live in longhouses, farming and working in ways not so different from those of their ancestors. Some acquired domestic animals for agriculture and transportation purposes, but certain things also remained the same. Women were still the primary farmers, growing traditional foods along with newly introduced crops such as potatoes and wheat. Gahnawagehronu still relocated the village every 10 to 20 years until 1716, when they moved to the current location. Just as every society changes over time, so did Gahnawage. And just as every society disagrees about changes, so also Gahnawagehronu disagreed among themselves from time to time. Many of the conflicts discussed here were about whether to incorporate European practices and how indigenous law should be applied in new contexts. Such disagreements first appear in the archival record in the late 18th century, when there was a clash between those who wished to adapt settler norms and those who drew a line in the sand and refused any more change, and many perspectives between these two extremes. It should be said, however, that the people who favored continuity of Gahnawage law and gradual change tended to outnumber those who wanted radical change. 
The most fundamental changes in Ganyankahaga land practices during the 18th century came when the community decided not to relocate again. After establishing their village on the shores of the St. Lawrence in 1667, at the location of today's La Prairie, they had moved four times. But due to expanding French-Canadian settlement, little land remained available for further moves after 1716. When, in 1750, 30 Gahnawageheronu families moved to a new location, it was 100 kilometers upriver at Akwazasne, where they settled with families from other communities. The new reality of a permanent village had important implications for the way in which Gahnawageheronu lived and used their land. One of these was the architectural trend away from longhouses and toward single-family dwellings. Historian Gretchen Green argues that most Gahnawageheronu were still living in longhouses at the end of the 18th century, but she does not indicate when the change to smaller dwellings occurred. The evidence is scant and contradictory, but the transition must have been underway by the middle of the 18th century, even if traditional-style longhouses were still common at that time. One early 18th-century drawing shows around 50 longhouses of fairly consistent sizes. When the military engineer Louis Franquet visited Gahnawage in 1752-1753, he observed that people lived in longhouses, but also that some were starting to build smaller houses using squared timber or stone. Franquet's fortification map includes both long and short dwellings, but it is difficult to draw conclusions from such scant evidence. Archaeologist Kurt Jordan shows that Rudinashuni had already been innovating with dwelling size and design for decades and that their villages had included both long and short buildings for quite some time. French army officers Louis-Antoine de Bougainville and Pierre Pouchot visited Gahnawage in the 1750s and also mentioned the presence of longhouses. A decade later, when an English fur trader named John Long visited the village, he said it consisted of about 200 houses, most constructed of stone. However, Gretchen Green argues that this cannot be accurate because no other visitor mentioned so many stone houses at the time. In 1796, Irish travel writer Isaac Weld described a village of 50 log houses, which Green contends were probably longhouses. However, given the complete absence of any 19th century references to longhouses, it seems likely that Weld simply underestimated the number of houses and that longhouses had already been replaced by stone and wood cottages. By the early 19th century, most Gahnawageheronu were living in smaller dwellings. This transition left no paper trail, but there is no evidence that it caused conflict or even debate. It is likely that the architectural change was not as disruptive as outsiders might suppose. Longhouses had always been partitioned into apartments, each of which, according to Lewis Morgan, was in fact a separate house having a fire in the center and accommodating two families, one upon each side of the fire. Thus, a house 120 feet long would contain 10 fires and 20 families. Since families already lived in separate spaces, the move to smaller houses need not have been a significant rupture or a sign of acculturation. Nor did it happen quickly. 
It was instead an adaptation to the new opportunities and influences, but also to the reality of a permanent village. Since the village would no longer move, erecting more permanent structures made sense. Another likelihood is that the new smaller houses had many features of longhouses. Historian Carl Benn mentions that houses at Six Nations of the Grand River in 1812 looked outwardly like European houses, but the interiors of some resembled longhouses, with double rows of bunks for seating, sleeping, and storage. 18th Century Adaptations a permanent village also required a reinvention of the community's relationship to the land. Instead of moving when conditions became unfavorable, Gahnawa Geheronu now needed to find new ways to manage their lands. This did not mean completely abandoning the old ways and adopting the methods and laws of their settler neighbors. Instead, many Gahnawa Geheronu retained certain practices and fundamental principles while also embracing some new practices technologies, and regulations. They continued to practice Swidden cultivation on their limited land base and to maintain legal principles, such as tying individual rights to land to active use. Nevertheless, questions of land ownership and inheritance became important, and the legal principle of women's jurisdiction over land was de-emphasized in an increasingly patriarchal colonial context. No particular event in the archives marks this change, but by the 18th century both men and women were acknowledged as the owners of plots of land. I discuss possible reasons for this change in chapters 4 and 5. One serious problem related to living in a permanent village while practicing shifting agriculture was the distance to fertile fields and firewood. Lafitau wrote, as the Indians never manure their ground and do not even let it lie fallow, it is soon exhausted and worn out. Then they are forced to move their villages elsewhere and make new fields in new lands. They are also reduced to this necessity, at least in North America and the old countries, by another more pressing reason for, as the women have to carry firewood to their lodges every day. The longer a village stays in the same place, the farther distant the wood is so that, after a certain number of years, they can no longer keep up the work of carrying the wood on their shoulders from so far. The solution to this problem was the horse. By the early 18th century, many Gahnawagehronu were using horses to transport firewood and produce. Lafitau was there at the time of the transition. The Indians in the neighborhood of the French cities of New France have wished to avoid this inconvenience and have, some time since, gotten horses of their own to take the wood to their lodges on their toboggans in winter and on the backs of these same horses during the summer. The young people, delighted to have the horses to lead, undertake this task willingly, and the wives, freed by this means of a heavy burden, are no less pleased than they. But the presence of horses brought new problems. The horses, which are very numerous, spread in droves over the cornfields wherever there are no hedges or enclosures to stop them. They lay the fields waste entirely. No one can remedy this situation for, since the Indians lack stables in which to feed them, 
All that they can do is to shut them in by poor fences which the horses cross easily whether, not finding food enough in these enclosures, they proceed to go get it elsewhere in the form of corn, which tempts them more than hay, or whether the children, who are constantly stirring them up to make them fight, press them, and force them to jump their fences. Whereas horses resolve certain difficulties, they created new ones relating to housing and feeding them, as well as requirements for fencing, so that they would not destroy crops. A century later, in 1810, an English actor named John Bernard toured Gahnawage. He was impressed by its system of communal horse ownership. In the course of our walk round the town, our guide pointed out to us a field in which all the horses belonging to the settlement were running loose and told us it was the practice whenever a man wanted one for him to take the first that came to hand, whether it was his own or not, to make use of it, and then return it at his convenience to this general repository. This may be a very good practice, thought I, in Kaknawaga, but I doubt how it would be found to work in any other part of the world. The common pasture that Bernard observed remained in place until the latter decades of the 19th century but I have encountered no other sources that describe Gahnawage communal horse ownership in this way. Declining returns from hunting and fishing posed another serious problem for Gahnawage Hirono, especially as all arable land in the vicinity had been taken up by settlers who hunted and fished without any legal or personal accountability to their indigenous neighbors. Overhunting and overfishing caused significant harm to indigenous communities, especially beginning toward the end of the 18th century. Although historians and anthropologists have long emphasized the centrality of horticulture, Rudinashuni economies also depended on fish and meat obtained by hunting. Van den Bogert, for example, described 17th century Rudinashuni diets as rich and meat heavy and Rudinesuni chiefs who visited Paris in 1666 were not much impressed by anything except the meat market. Decisions to incorporate livestock into Gahnawageronu land practices in the 18th century may have been made to retain access to meat at a time of diminishing returns from hunting and fishing. By the second half of the 18th century, Colonial officials and observers already remarked that Gahnawage Hironu depended less on hunting than did other indigenous peoples because they raised their own crops and were heavily involved in trading. By 1801, many, if not most, raised livestock and poultry. Nevertheless, declining returns from hunting, trapping, and fishing led to friction with settlers and other First Nations. For example, Algonquins and Nipissings from Ganesadage complained that Gahnawage hunters trespassed on territories they claimed along the upper Kachisipi, Ottawa, River, and Lake Nipissing. These conflicts were another reason Gahnawage Hronu had chosen to hunt less by the late 18th century. In 1796, Indian agent M. Stacy and Indian affairs storekeeper John Lees wrote that Gahnawage men had no hunting of any consequence and were becoming more laborious as a result. They also mentioned that the cultivation of corn, maize, was a significant part of the Gahnawage economy, estimating average annual production at 100 bushels per family. 
Although Gahnawage Hironu incorporated domestic animals and new crops such as potatoes and wheat into their daily lives, they continued to grow their traditional crops. Some became commercial farmers in the 19th century and others leased out their lands to white farmers. Subsequent chapters explore questions and conflicts related to this transition. Gahnawage Governance Rudinashuni societies were organized in ways that discouraged the establishment of political and economic hierarchies and inequalities, restrictions that were closely related to limits on the accumulation of individual wealth. European observers, their own assumptions often shaken by what they saw, remarked excitedly, both positively and negatively, on the egalitarian nature of Iroquoian society and politics. French military officer Louis Armand, Baron de La Hontan, noted that among 17th century Wendats, an Iroquoian society whose cultural and legal traditions resembled those of Rudinashuni, everyone is as rich and as noble as his neighbor. The women are entitled to the same liberty with the men, and the children enjoy the same privileges with their fathers. Jesuit missionary Paul Lejeune wrote that they are born, live, and die in a liberty without restraint. They do not know what is meant by brittle and bit. He added that they are very generous among themselves and even make a show of not loving anything, of not being attached to the riches of the earth, so that they may not grieve if they lose them. Gahnawa Gehronu maintained fierce independence throughout the 18th century forming political alliances with colonial and indigenous powers according to their own interests. For example, although allied with the French, they were suspicious of French efforts to protect their village with new fortifications and garrisoned soldiers, as depicted in Figure 1.2. Gahnawage diplomats, as representatives of their sovereign nation, negotiated agreements with colonial powers, probably expecting to continue to share the bounty of the land like a dish with one spoon. Around the turn of the 18th century, Gahnawage leaders had the authority to concede land, construct and lease a community-owned mill, and make legal agreements with external institutions. It is not known whether Gahnawage Hironu as a whole sanctioned or respected these powers, but both French and British colonial governments benefited from these relatively new exercises of chiefly power, and they encouraged it. A number of contemporary observers and historians have commented on aspects of the political system in Gahnawage before the establishment of the elected Band Council in 1889. The military engineer Louis Franquet noted in 1752-1753 that Gahnawage was divided into three famille clans, each of which consisted of two bonds, subclans, led by individual chiefs who were accountable to a grand chief. This council structure of seven chiefs, six clan chiefs, and one grand chief persisted until the late 19th century. There may have been up to 33 chiefs if subchiefs are included in the count. The seven principal chiefs were elected by their respective clans, named for life, and confirmed by the Grand Council of the Seven Nations, as well as by colonial authorities. 
1830, the influential resident missionary Joseph Marcoux compared the position of Gahnawage chief to that of an elected member of parliament in which the chief represented the members of his clan. Grand Chief Gunasuje declared in 1840 that the confirmation of the chief by the colonial government was a mere formality, but this approval became more important over time, and there are plenty of mid-century examples of the colonial government attempting to interfere in the nomination process. By the late 18th century, male leaders had taken some authority over the clearing, previously held by women. The colonial archive for Gahnawage contains almost no explicit mention of this change, but it is clear that certain patriarchal political values took hold during this period. Even so, women certainly continued to lead in ways that were not perceptible to colonial observers, and these roles became more visible again toward the end of the 19th century. Chapter 6 It was a Rodinesuni norm for the leading women of each clan to choose the male leaders and women played this role in Gahnawage as well. In 1835, James Hughes, superintendent of Indian Affairs for the District of Montreal, observed that the widows of chiefs seemed to wield political power equal to that of living chiefs. In early 19th century Gahnawage, clan mothers continued to play a key role in nominating and recalling chiefs, even if this power was shared with clan men but the practice eroded over the course of the century. By the late 19th century, the DIA was refusing to confirm the replacement of any chief, and it became difficult to raise up new chiefs under the traditional system with the approval of the department. Refusing to confirm new chiefs was almost certainly a colonial tactic to pressure Gahnawage into accepting the band council system. When the first band council was elected under the rules of the Indian Advancement Act in 1889, only three traditional chiefs remained. The Seigneury of Sault St. Louis To better understand the history of Gahnawage land and law, we must consider its shared history with French colonial settlement under the seigneurial system. The territory of Gahnawage was long known to settlers as the Seigneury of Sault St. Louis, a legal entity created by the French crown in 1680, long after the village was established in that location. Its more than 40,000 acres were initially composed of two separate concessions. The first ran two leagues upriver from the Lachine Rapids and two leagues inland. The second, of about the same size, is just upriver from the first. The deeds specify that the lands were granted to the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, for the benefit of the Iroquois of Gahnawage until the day they should abandon it. The documents also forbade any French settlers on the tract from keeping cattle or establishing taverns. Nevertheless, the Jesuit missionaries came to believe that they were the owners of the seigneury. In 1718, the two concessions were joined into one territory about four times the size of the current reserve. Some scholars, such as legal historian Michel Morin, suggest that Sault Ste. Louis should not be considered a true seigneury. Morin notes that the deeds of concession made no provision for how the lands would be settled and developed and did not give the parameters as to the relationship between seigneur and censitaire, i.e., the rights and obligations of each. 
central features of most other seigneurial concessions. Unlike most seigneurial deeds, these deeds state that the land would revert to the crown if the indigenous inhabitants were to abandon it. This suggests that French authorities expected indigenous occupation to be temporary, an unfulfilled expectation that produced what historian Isabelle Bouchard calls an ambiguous legal status. Moray argues that Sault Ste. Louis should simply be seen as lands belonging to indigenous people, not a seigneury. Similarly, historical anthropologist Carmen Lambert maintains that Sault Ste. Louis was never intended for non-indigenous settlement and that any concessions made to non-Indigenous people should have been considered illegal. Even if the territory was not initially conceptualized as a typical seigneury, however, the practices of the Jesuits and Gahnawa Gehronu over many decades resulted in what was, to all intents and purposes, a seigneury under French and then British colonial law. Jesuits acted as seigneurs, and Gahnawa Gehronu, both before and after the British conquest, referred to themselves as seigneurs and owners of these lands. Even Araquande, discussed in Chapter 2 as a dissident who consistently opposed Gahnawage leaders, identified himself in a court deposition as one of the Indians of the seigneury of Sault St. Louis, who are seigneurs and proprietors of said seigneury. Sault Ste. Louis under the French and British regimes Despite the absence of any legal provisions allowing them to do so, Jesuit missionaries began to concede lands to French settlers on the borders of the seigneury in 1704. Colonial authorities finally responded to pressure from Gahnawage leaders in 1718, when they ordered the Jesuits not to make any further concessions. However, the Jesuits ignored the order and in 1720 began to concede lands at an even faster rate. By 1759, they had conceded some 13,065 arpence, 27% of the seigneury, to French-Canadian settlers. Continuing Gahnawage protests led the colonial government to revisit the matter at mid-century. In 1754, the president du Conseil de la Marine determined that the lands in question belonged neither to Gahnawageronu nor the Jesuits, but ultimately to the crown. He ruled that the Jesuits did not have the right to concede lands, a ruling the Jesuits again disregarded, but he made no judgments on more specific questions regarding the legal status of the Sioux and allowed previous concessions to stand. Historical consultant Joan Holmes finds that the Jesuits succeeded in taking over land in Sault Ste. Louis by cancelling concessions and uniting them to the domain of La Prairie, by manipulating boundaries between lots, and by describing conceded areas as being shared between the seigneuries of La Prairie and Sault Ste. Louis. When British forces invaded the St. Lawrence Valley in 1760 and it became clear that Montreal would fall, Leaders of nations previously allied with France, including Gahnawage leaders, met with British commander Geoffrey Amherst at Oswegatchi in February to negotiate the terms for their neutrality. The British promised indigenous nations that in exchange for ending their military defense of New France, they would enjoy the same privileges under British rule as they had under the French, including their land rights to seigneuries and hunting territories. 
Then, in September 1760, the Treaty of Gotnawage, a confirmation and expansion of the Treaty of Oswegachi, transformed the previously negotiated neutrality into an alliance with the British. The 1763 Royal Proclamation and 1764 Treaty of Niagara subsequently affirmed the territorial rights of indigenous peoples and set apart large territories as Indian lands, which were to be off-limits to settlers without the permission of the Crown. Legal historian John Burroughs shows that the Royal Proclamation, as well as post-1764 treaties in British North America, must be understood in light of the Treaty of Niagara. The latter included promises of the continuation of Indigenous sovereignty, free trade and travel for Indigenous people, prohibition on settlement on Indigenous lands without Indigenous consent, annual presence, and general promises of mutual respect and peacefulness. The Royal Proclamation stipulated that settlers could not purchase lands directly from First Nations, only the Crown was authorized to negotiate for them. The goals of the proclamation were to limit European settlement to the eastern seaboard, to thus prevent hostilities between settlers and indigenous peoples, and to allow the Crown to control the pace and character of colonial settlement. The promise of a vast western territory free of European settlement was broken almost as soon as it was made, but certain elements of the royal proclamation became embedded in subsequent Indian policy. One of these is the idea that settlers should not be allowed to buy indigenous land, that only the crown can do so. Despite the treaties protecting indigenous lands, Jesuit missionaries took advantage of the administrative chaos following the conquest of New France by conceding Gahnawage lands at an accelerated pace to the concern and fury of Gahnawage Hironu. When they asked the British in 1762 to put an end to Jesuit mismanagement, the governor of Lower Canada, General Thomas Gage, conducted an investigation. He concluded that the Jesuits did not own the land since the sole purpose of the original arrangement was for the benefit of the indigenous inhabitants. Although he ruled that Gahnawageronu should be considered possessors of the whole territory, including church buildings and revenue, he believed that their land rights were intended to be temporary and that underlying ownership was vested in the crown. Nevertheless, Gage refused to annul Jesuit concessions made under the French regime. A later DIA interpretation, 1879, determined that following the Gage decision, Sault St. Louis was entirely and exclusively vested in the Iroquois under the supervision of the Indian Department. The Gage investigation also resulted in the creation of the position of receiver, who was legally authorized by both the colonial governor and Gahnawage chiefs to collect rents and to enter into certain contracts on behalf of the chiefs. After the Gage decision removed the Jesuits from the process of granting lands, the chiefs and their receivers issued only a small number of concessions. Isabel Bouchard identifies 22 between 1760 and 1820. This arrangement lasted until 1821 when the position of receiver was replaced by an agent commissioned by the governor, and the chiefs discovered that they had only limited influence over who would be appointed. 
Although the arrangement under the British regime slowed the loss of land through concessions, Gahnawa Gehronu to this day have not been able to recover illegally conceded lands. With the danger of illegal and unauthorized concessions largely removed, Gahnawa Gehronu turned to other threats to their land base. These included boundary incursions, unpaid rents, and settlers who continued to squat on unconceded land. According to historian Maxime Goyer, more than 34% of petitions from indigenous people who lived in the St. Lawrence Valley during the British period concerned land and territory, and many of these came from Gahnawage. Most of the laws and the land pertains to unconceded seigneurial lands that were principally occupied by Gahnawage Hrono and that form the basis of the reserve today. Bouchard refers to this part of the territory as an ambiguous space, largely because colonial officials were unsure about its legal status. That apparent ambiguity was partly the result of the legal complexity of the seigneury as a whole, but it was also due to the strident, unambiguous, and asymmetrical assertions of both the Crown and Gahnawage chiefs to exercise authority over it. The Crown solidified its claim by seizing all Jesuit estates in 1800. The perception that the Crown held the underlying title to Gahnawage land was of course very convenient and lucrative for the Crown, but it is based on the legal interpretation of indigenous seigneuries as ultimately vested in the Crown. This, in turn, became one of the legal bases for the creation of the Indian Reserve System under the administration of the federal government after Confederation. The Boundaries of Sault Ste. Louis A major concern for Gahnawa Gehronu throughout the British colonial period was the location and integrity of the boundary around the seigneury. A July 1762 survey ordered by Gage and completed by the surveyor, Jean Pelladeau, marked out the border between Sault Ste. Louis and La Prairie, which Gage inexplicably moved only two months later to add a large strip of land, measuring 37 arpents by two leagues, to the Jesuit-owned seigneury of La Prairie. After Gahnawagehronu bitterly disputed the alteration, Brigadier General Ralph Burton, Gage's successor, had three surveyors re-examine the boundary in 1763. They found that the Peladeau survey had been correct and subsequently reintegrated the tract with Sault Ste. Louis. Three years later, the Jesuits asserted their claim to the tract before the Court of Common Pleas in Montreal, but lost. That decision was reversed, however, when the Jesuits appealed to the Superior Court of Quebec, and so the tract was restored to La Prairie in 1768. Surveyor General John Collins retracted the boundary in 1769, officially adding the strip of land to La Prairie. In 1798, the Crown, on behalf of Gahnawage, successfully sued the Jesuits regarding the same boundary issue, but the Jesuits won again on appeal the following year. Gahnawage Hronu pointed out in 1794 and 1797 that the Jesuits had moved a boundary marker so that a grist mill would be fraudulently included in the La Prairie Seigneury and that settler farmers routinely moved boundary markers to enlarge their properties. Since the Crown seized the Jesuit estates in 1800, 
All subsequent Gahnawageranu litigation was against the Crown. In 1807, Gahnawage sent a delegation to London to protest the location of the boundary, but it failed to convince the Secretary of the Colonies to take action. In the 1820s, Gahnawage petitioned Governor-General Lord Dalhousie, but he too rejected its claim. The nation also sent a delegation to the Governor of British North America, James Kempt, in 1828, saying that the most valuable part of the seigneury, including the gristmill and other buildings, should be restored to it. As evidence that the land belonged to Gahnawageronu, they reminded him that the Jesuits had needed their permission before building the mill, but Kempt rejected their claim. An 1829 delegation to the king on the same matter also accomplished nothing except to bring in some money for church renovations. On the western boundary of the seigneury, Gahnawage leaders repeatedly accused the Grey Nuns of encroaching on their lands. Chiefs protested the location of that boundary, which was surveyed in 1769 and ran through fields cultivated by Gahnawage Ronu. They objected to the loss of a boundary tract of ten arpents, which they had used and occupied for many years. Governor Guy Carleton and other colonial officials eventually came to agree with them, and thus the western boundary was resurveyed by John Collins in 1773. Nevertheless, it remained contested at least until the mid-19th century, when Gahnawage leaders asserted their claim to all of the land between Gahnawage and the Shadagee River. They also pointed out that they had been dispossessed of St. Bernard Island, formerly under the cultivation by Gahnawage farmers, without ever having sold or ceded rights to it. Successive colonial governments dismissed many Gahnawage Ronu claims as unfounded, but repeatedly promised to send surveyors to fix the boundaries. However, the entire border around the unconceded portion of the seigneury was not surveyed until the end of the 19th century, and much of the land in question remains in the hands of neighboring settlers. Collecting Seigneurial Rents and Managing Money Another major concern of Gahnawage leaders was unpaid seigneurial rents and government agents who failed in their task of collecting and delivering rents. In 1821, Indian Affairs Superintendent John Johnson began to take a more active role in appointing and supervising agents to handle these tasks. Johnson asked Gahnawage chiefs to recommend some respectable person to be their agent for the collection of their rents and the transaction of all other business connected with their lands. They recommended Shadagi land surveyor Charles Archambault, who had already served in the capacity for two years and had acquitted himself entirely to their satisfaction. However, when the influential parish priest Joseph Marcoux raised objections to Archambault and recommended notary Nicholas Benjamin Doucet of Montreal instead, Johnson complied with his wishes. This was an important moment in the erosion of chiefly power amid the increasing interference of the Indian Department. Furthermore, the fiscal affairs of the seigneurial lands were generally disorganized and inconsistent, meaning that Gahnawage could not derive significant revenue from the lands it had otherwise lost. Three years later, Gahnawage chiefs complained that Doucet was a man whom we don't know, distant from us, 
who does not know the censitaires who pay us rent, does not know how much each is required to pay, does not know the extent and location of their lands, and who does not give us wheat or money to relieve the ills of our poor. They added that Doucette was afraid to leave his home, refused to speak to them, and had hired someone else to collect the rents in his stead. Doucette was eventually replaced, but crooked and unreliable agents continued to be the scourge of Gahnawagehronu. Income from rents fluctuated over the years, but could be significant. In 1830, the income from conceded lands was about 200 pounds in currency and 800 pounds in agricultural produce. It was used for church maintenance, public infrastructure, legal services, salaries for the miller and the guardians of the common pasture, upkeep of the mill, and hosting visiting delegations. According to contemporary departmental reports, revenue could have been much greater if it had been properly managed. Throughout the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s, one agent after another was investigated for irregularities and quickly replaced, and records on seigneurial income were incomplete at best. The 1858 report by the Special Commissioners into the Affairs of the Indian Department revealed that the annual public revenue of Gahnawage was small, amounting to $1,062, of which about $1,000 was derived from rents in money and kind from their leased lands. The rest was paid by the Seminaire de Montréal as interest on money loaned to it during the previous decade for the construction of the Notre-Dame Church, today Notre-Dame Basilica, in Montreal. The rents were collected by the Indian agent, who received no government salary but had the right to retain a portion of the rents. An indication of the importance and lucrative nature of this position is the fact that a new agent was required to give the Indian Department a $4,000 security. The department felt that the seigneurial arrangements for the 14,257 conceded acres produce rents below market value, but it excused itself from intervening because Gahnawage finances were still largely out of its hands. As the special commissioners emphasized in 1858, over most of this money, the Indian Department has no control, nor does it pass through their hands. The above-named rents are collected by the local agent, who is bound to render annual returns to headquarters of his receipts and expenditure. Yet, colonial law came to treat Indigenous communities such as Gahnawage as not possessing a corporate legal personality, which prevented them from pleading their case before the courts except through their tutor, the king. They had little recourse when censitaires paid no rent, agents failed to collect it, and the Crown refused to intervene. An additional but related blow to the independence of the chiefs occurred at the end of the 1830s, when the Indian Department imposed the requirement that the chiefs provide it with accounts of the seigneurial revenue. Abolition of the Seigneurial System the abolition of the seigneurial system in 1854 directly affected the Gahnawage economy and land base. The law enabled censitaires to transform their feudal ownership, with its rights and responsibilities, into the equivalent of fee-simple ownership, free of all seigneurial rights and duties. Thus, the parts of the seigneury that were occupied by settlers were now to become private property and would no longer produce revenue for the community. 
Seigneurs were to be indemnified by the government for their losses at an amount arrived at by calculating the value of seigneury land using a cadastre abrégé, cadastral summary document. The law made exceptions for seigneuries that were owned by religious orders and First Nations, so changes there occurred a little differently. The cadastre abrégé for Gahnawage was created between 1858 and 1860 by land commissioner H. Judah, who assessed the value of the conceded portion of the seigneury at $99,209.83. This was the compensation that Gahnawage would be owed for territorial losses brought on by the abolition of the seigneurial system. Judah listed the seigneury as belonging to la tribu des sauvages Iroquois, etc., the Indian tribe of the Iroquois, etc. But this was corrected to remove the etc. Its inclusion would have indicated some doubt as to the sole ownership of the seigneury, but its removal may have signified that the creators of the cadastre abrégé recognized Gahnawage Hironu as the sole owners. At least as late as 1890, representatives of the Quebec government cited the Gage decision of 1762 to argue that Gahnawagehronu were in possession of this territory and that federal government claims to it were thus invalid. No indemnity was paid at the time, however. Finally, in 1881, $10,000, about 10% of the amount determined in 1860, were paid to a trust fund managed by the DIA. The department subsequently used this money to fund the Wallbank Survey, an intrusive, expensive land subdivision conducted against the wishes of the community. Chapter 6. In an attempt to encourage the censitaires to pay their rental arrears, the federal government passed the Act Respecting the Seigneury of Sault Ste. Louis in 1894 which reduced the arrears of most tenants by 25%, but most were unmoved by the law and paid nothing. The 1935 Seigneurial Rent Abolition Act provided for commutation of rents by payment of a capital sum the interest on which 6% equals the rent and which applied to Sault Ste. Louis. It set up a fund from which censitaires would borrow at low interest to make the lump sum payment, but few opted even for this. In 1967, the Gahnawage Band Council unanimously rejected a lump sum payment in exchange for which the community would have given up its seigneurial rights. Negotiations on this matter are still ongoing. There was never a decisive moment when Sault Ste. Louis concessions were transformed into fee-simple ownership, and government agents continued to collect rents in a haphazard way after Confederation. But by the time of seigneurial abolition, rents were already falling off, largely due to neglect by Indian agents and the unwillingness of the colonial government to intercede. Mentions of seigneurial income in the DIA archives became increasingly rare as the 19th century drew to a close. Historical anthropologist Carmen Lambert suggests that some censitaires stopped paying rent in 1871, and others followed suit. By 1891, almost no one was paying. Gahnawagehronu, however, did not forget that this income was their right and inheritance, and they often brought the matter to the attention of the Indian Department. For example, 
1874, the chiefs complained that agents had not been collecting rents and that the books had not been kept since 1848. Ottawa sued one censitaire for 30 years' arrears in 1889, but instead of producing any income for Gahnawage, the case turned into a drawn-out legal dispute between Quebec and Ottawa over who had the right to collect rents. In the early 20th century, federal and provincial governments again locked horns over the question of whether a small island in the St. Lawrence River was part of Gahnawage, with the court siding with Quebec's claim that it held title. Subsequent chapters of this book continue the story of Canadian colonialism during the 19th century and Gahnawage Hironu efforts to defend their territory and assert their sovereignty over it. Though my focus does not go much beyond 1900, I would note that perhaps the most serious 20th century blow to Gahnawage territorial sovereignty came with the massive expropriation of its most valuable land to build the St. Lawrence Seaway in the 1950s. In that instance, the DIA helped the St. Lawrence Seaway Authority to commute seigneurial rents, eliminate the debt of accumulated rents owed to Gahnawage with a much smaller lump sum payment. And these commutations continued in later years against the wishes of Gahnawage Hirono. The Gahnawage Band Council vociferously protested these unilateral attempts to eliminate its interest in conceded seigneurial land. And since the 1980s, the council has pursued its claim to seigneurial lands and revenues through Canada's specific claims process. Conclusion an 1864 map made by P.L. Morin shows the seigneury of Sault Ste. Louis, including conceded lots, long rectangles in the bottom half of the image, that still produced rental income for the Gahnawage community. It is one of the last 19th century maps to depict the seigneury, including both conceded and unconceded lands. The latter would become Indian Reserve Number 14. The caption on the map, not shown, reads, Plan of the Seigneury of Sault St. Louis, or Kaknawaga, which indicates that the entire seigneury was equated with Gahnawage and that conceded lots occupied by French Canadians were still seen as part of the territory. In the process of transforming seigneurial tenure into private property, Canadian governments worked to impose the status of Indian reserve onto indigenous seigneurial lands. First, Seigneuries had to be dismantled before what remained of Indigenous seigneuries could become reserves. In 1880, when the DIA set out to survey the boundaries of the reserve, it effectively cut off the rest of the seigneury, both on the ground and in the colonial imagination. In this way, the federal government ensured that the reserve would be much smaller than the seigneury had been and that more land would be available to settlers as private property. Thus, in a way that Gahnawage Hironu could not have foreseen in the 17th century, both the seigneurial system and its abolition became frontiers where settler society was able to undermine indigenous nationhood. Many readers may be surprised to learn that indigenous peoples, including Gahnawage Hironu, voluntarily inserted themselves into a seigneurial legal framework during the 17th and 18th centuries. But one should remember that power relations at that time were very different from what they would become. 
the relatively weak French colony depended on the military and political might of its indigenous allies, and indigenous nations did not see French colonial law as a serious challenge or threat to their own legal orders. That would change over time as colonial power grew, but given their actions and words in subsequent decades and centuries, it is clear that Gahnawa Gehronu tended to view their seigneurial arrangements with French Canadians as highly compatible with their own conceptions of land sharing and reciprocity. Rodinashuni leaders in many places and times, in the Mohawk Valley, in the Grand River Valley, for example, made serious and innovative attempts to share their lands with settlers in ways that would be mutually beneficial, seeing these relationships through the metaphor of the dish with one spoon and the legal principles of the Gayanerech Goa. Most of these efforts were sabotaged by settlers who refused to be good neighbors and by colonial governments who invariably sided with them. But it was not until the late 18th century that Gahnawage leaders would have to face the new threat of Gahnawage Hronu, who openly challenged Gahnawage law in colonial courts. <laughs> 